Did you know that studies have shown affirmations can profoundly influence your psychological well-being, enhancing self-confidence and reducing anxiety? Here at Positive Birth Australia, we have crafted a 20-minute birth affirmations track filled with soulful, carefully curated affirmations to empower, inspire, and guide you to deeply remember the power you hold within. And to my fellow belly birth mothers, we have created a track specifically for you to honor that all birth is a sacred moment of profound significance. For only $5, you can download and immerse yourself in our affirmations track to transform your mindset in the lead up to birth and during labor, serving as a potent reminder of the inherent power and love you possess. Visit us at www.positivebirthaustralia.com or head to the show notes and follow the link provided to start your journey toward a more empowered birth experience. Welcome to Positive Birth Australia, a podcast created to empower and educate mothers along their own pregnancy journey. Each week, I'll be sharing insightful and inspiring birth stories and advice in the hopes to help you create your own positive birth experience. I'm your host, Sky Marie. Let's get into today's show. Welcome to today's episode where we join Taylor on her profound journey from maiden to mother. When Taylor first conceived her daughter, she found herself with limited knowledge about childbirth and the various care options available to her. Seeking continuity of care, she embraced her local MGP program, leaning on the familiar presence of dedicated midwives that brought her a sense of security throughout her pregnancy. As Taylor's labor began, she was confronted with intense back pain due to her baby's posterior position. The realization that her labor was unfolding differently from her expectations sparked a sense of fear, casting a shadow of doubt over her birthing process. Eventually, interventions became part of her birth story, leaving Taylor with a feeling of disconnection from her daughter that resembled her disconnection throughout pregnancy. With the arrival of her next pregnancy, Taylor was deeply immersed in her pursuit for knowledge. She delved into the intricacies of physiological birth and what best supports the hormonal flow of labor. A turning point emerged during a routine scan when Taylor struggled to advocate for herself. The realization that her voice might remain unheard during childbirth, given her difficulty using it at that specific moment, served as a pivotal wake-up call. This realization, along with the disconnection she felt with her care providers during her pregnancy, prompted her to consider the path of free birth and embracing the sovereignty of her birthing journey. Today, we hear Taylor's transformative path, guided by the wisdom she discovered and the resources that fostered her unwavering faith in her body and its innate capacity for birth. Enjoy the episode. Taylor, welcome to Positive Birth Australia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. I had a massive fangirl moment when I saw you in Bunnings and honestly, like, I'm still having that moment now. So oh, I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> oh, that makes me feel so special. Thank you. So to kick off the episode, could you just let everyone know a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I live in Brisbane's Bayside. Mm-hmm. 
Um, in my family, I have my partner, Adam, and I have my two kids, my eldest, Sylvie, she's four, and my youngest uh, is 14 months, and that's my son. His name is Fern. We also have uh, a dog and a cat and two hens. <laughs> <laughs> Got to have a couple of chickens in the mix, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> now, were your pregnancies planned conceptions or? No. No. They were not. Okay. So I, yeah, I am um, th- no shade on anyone who plans their pregnancies, but for me, that's just, I just feel a bit weirded out by that oh, <laughs> whole concept. Really? I don't, yeah, absolutely no shade on anyone <laughs> who has, um, you know, fallen pregnant that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was more for me, like if it happens, it happens. Yeah. Um, I definitely knew from a young age that I, I wanted children. Like I, um, there was always that desire there that I would, you know, would have children as um, when the time was right. But there was never a um, never a, a specific time that I sort of was like, oh, you know, by the time I'm 25 or by the time I'm 30. Yeah, it wasn't anything like that. It was just sort of, you know, if it happens, it happens. Yeah. Okay. So would you actively try not to fall pregnant then or um, did you just let it happen? Oh, to be honest, when I was younger, I was pretty irresponsible. Yeah. Like okay. I, I, I was. And I think that was just, you know, I, I don't, this is the thing though. Like I don't think it was like a, a deliberate, um, I'm deliberately going to be irresponsible in that way. It was more sort of, um, I felt that there was a lot of pressure and this comes into, you know, a lot of social conditioning, but I felt that there was a lot of pressure around pleasing the other person. And in my case, that was, you know, uh, a guy. And um, so that kind of not falling pregnant, I suppose, in those instances was kind of reaffirmed my, if it's meant to happen, it's meant to happen. But I I absolutely do not recommend that method um, at all. so, yeah, it, it was um, – look, I mean, to start off with, I, and I, I contemplated whether I was going to talk about this particular aspect or not, but I am actually going to – I will talk about my abortion because that was my first pregnancy. So in total I've had three pregnancies, if I include that. Yeah. Um, and that was a case of – I think that was meant to happen to uh, – throw me a really I guess hard lesson and that was Mm -hmm. in regards to responsibility and about what it was that I actually wanted when it came to uh, a partner and children um but I wanted to talk about it not because of that aspect but because I think it's so important um for breaking down the stigma around it because there is so much stigma around it but also that abortion is a form of birth as well, and I think that um, a lot of people, because it's so taboo um, and a really confusing and confronting time for so many people who go through that experience, they forget that it is actually a form of birth. So whether it um, <clears throat> happens really, really early on or if it happens, um, when I say really early, I mean, you know, in the first few weeks of pregnancy or if it happens later, so towards the end of the um, first trimester, um it is a form of birth and the hormonal changes that come with conception are, uh, you know, they're happening from that moment of conception. And so for me, I was just an absolute mess because I didn't understand that. I didn't, you know, have that understanding of this is um, 
even though I had decided to have an abortion, that it was a form of birth. So there was still a postpartum phase there for me to navigate. And being with the person that I was with at the time, it just, that postpartum, well, the, the actual, the, the five or six weeks of pregnancy that I experienced in that postpartum phase was the learning curve for me to really know who, what I didn't want in a partner when it came to um, a life-changing rite of passage like that. So, um, yeah, going through that post postpartum phase, I think it's really important to acknowledge um, that that will happen in that experience. Um, but also I wanted to mention it because I feel like my abortion and then going through to uh, my, my daughter's birth and then my son's birth, it was like a gradual um, decline away from um, the medicalization of birth as well. So that first pregnancy experience was fully medicalized. You know, I had a DNC and um, I mean, I, I didn't really consider any other options in regards to that. That was sort of just said, well, this is what you do if you make the choice to have a terminator. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think there was no real way for me to actually integrate that experience um, until sort of now. Now that I, you know, um, since the birth of my son, well, since my the pregnancy with my son and his birth and understanding um, birth not just as, you know, what we've been told is a medical event but as a social and uh, cultural event and a rite of passage. So I've been able to finally integrate that experience and understand that it was, it was what it was um, because I um, – hadn't understood that I was experiencing, you know, an actual pregnancy and then a postpartum phase and um, yeah, integrating all of the emotions and the <clears throat> reality that comes with that. So I think it's so important. Um, and I, if, if anyone's listening that, you know, um, is currently going through that particular season or has experienced that and maybe, you know, is feeling a little bit sort of there's a lot of confusion around it, and I hope that maybe sharing my experience might provide some clarity. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's, you know, it's a part of your journey, right? So it deserves respect. Absolutely. So jumping to your daughter's birth, though, how was that experience? Um, so my daughter's birth, I, um, I actually <clears throat> met my partner now, my current partner. Um, <clears throat> it was probably about, like, maybe six to seven months after that experience. So he kind of just landed in my life. Um, and at first I was quite resistant because it was like, no, I'm done with everybody. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, we ended up hanging out and whatnot, and it was probably only about six months after that that I fell pregnant with my, with my daughter. And it was a moment where it was like we were both quite surprised, but there was never um, a moment where it was like, oh, should we wait? <laughs> you know, it was, yeah, we knew that this was, this was it. So, um, yeah, I fell pregnant with her and had an awful first trimester. So I was just, um, just terribly nauseous. I bedridden, could not get out of bed, could not get out of bed. I actually, it was probably longer than the first trimester. It was probably about five months that I was just horrendously unwell. Um, and I actually never threw up once and, on reflection, I so leading up to that, I was a bit of a party animal. So I was like just chronically, I guess, malnourished and just, okay. um, yeah, my body just needed everything. So I think that's probably the only reason I wasn't um, 
like throwing up in because my body was like, we actually need everything, even though you want to. Um, I, I was just tired though, and I think as well, like I was I was um, withdrawing. So I basically because I basically went cold cold turkey on um, like cigarettes, alcohol, um, and other things. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah, um, it was just my body was like, no, this is this is we're not doing this anymore. You need to put your energy into something else, and that was that was yeah, that was my daughter. So after that, um, oh, so I should probably talk about my model of care because that's important. Um, I. At the time, I was living in Bilimba, and I'd lived in Brisbane for quite a few years before that, but just finding a, uh, a good, like, um, doctor that specialised in women's health was actually really challenging, and I, I had never found one. Um, so it was just sort of, oh, I, I need to find a doctor and sort myself out. So I booked in an appointment at the local doctors down the road from where I uh, was living at the time, and I saw an, an older an older doctor, and he... Um, was basically just I think it was very old-fashioned like yep congratulations um I'll send this off to the your referral off to the hospital and whatnot um are there any concerns and I remember saying you know I'm having a bit of trouble sleeping at night and he's like oh you know just a, a glass of what did he say like um I'll oh, just get up and make yourself a hot chocolate like in the middle of the night and I was like how is that going to help me sleep like it's full of sugar and caffeine <laughs> anyway I I was like yeah no worries and I left him um, and actually didn't hear from anybody until, oh, my goodness, I would have been almost halfway through my pregnancy before I had any other kind of um, antenatal um, appointment. And it was from uh, a midwife who actually reached out to me and said, uh, I've actually just picked you up in our system um, for midwife group practice, but you weren't due to be seen until... I think she she got in contact with me in maybe September, but I wasn't actually scheduled to see anyone until like the end of December, beginning of January. So I would have been, I think I was, I, it was about 32 weeks that I wasn't scheduled to see anyone. So basically somehow I fell through the cracks and had like no antenatal care for um, a lot of my pregnancy. And then she managed to pick me up, which was awesome, and because I was in the catchment for the MITRE hospital, um, as long as you're deemed low risk, you uh, qualify for midwife group practice. Um, now, that's usually quite a competitive uh, model of care to get into, but I, I think that the MITRE offer it on a wider scale than the other hospitals do. So I was really fortunate in that being my first pregnancy, I was able to access midwife group practice, being that when it's, you know, um, when you go through that model of care, um, you're, it is the gold standard. And um, if your midwives practice evidence-based care and woman-centred care, then you are most likely going to have a um, really positive experience. So, yeah, she, she would come to my house and do the antenatal appointments, which was awesome to be able to, you know, um, do all my measurements and whatnot um, in my own home. Oh, we talked about how I wanted to have her. And, I, I mean, look, to be honest, I knew nothing about birth other than what my mum had experienced and what, you know, the media, movies and whatnot portray it to be. Um, but I, and, and even given that, um, I wanted a water birth because 
I don't know how I'd come across that water births were kind of like, you know, but I've, I've always been, I, I grew up on the Gold Coast and I always did like um, swimming and nippers and triathlons and those sorts of things. So I am very much a water person. So for me, it was like, oh, that sounds amazing. Like, absolutely. Uh, so that was my one, you know, sort of plan. Uh, plan. And I did sort of have a birth plan in that regard. It was like I'd like a water birth, but that was sort of the extent to um, to the plan. And it was uh, there was I think I did contemplate like oh if I need an epidural I have an epidural, but I I just in my mind it was like oh no I won't need one like I'm having a water birth. So anyway, I was so I googled stuff right and look not that google's terrible but the information that's out there it's all it's the same mm-hmm. the pages that come up um they all sort of just echo each other like oh if once you get to you know 38 weeks your provider will want to do will want to talk to you about induction or you know those sorts of things um and there was no sort of um alternatives I suppose mm-hmm. when it came to that like I did look up water birth and that was pretty um informative in the way of sort of like what to expect I suppose but there was a lot of non-evidence-based information that I know now I know now is non-evidence-based like you know if um your water's break then you can't have a water birth or you know like little things like that that um weren't necessarily based on um, best practice or evidence based care or woman-centered care for that matter for that matter um so it was just yeah looking at sort of oh what's happening this week in my pregnancy and your baby's the size of a rock melon and yeah things like that so um I did find out that she was posterior Uh, my midwife told me that when she was doing you know fundal measurements and whatnot and um I also learned that um the reason her kicks weren't as um, forceful is not the right word, but because <laughs> um, she's behind the placenta, the placenta's actually in the front. So her spine <clears throat> was against my spine. Um, yeah. Um, so I, oh, by the end of my pregnancy, I was just enormous because I, my body was just like, feed me. So I ate like, Foods and drinks that I hadn't, like even though I was a party animal, I never drank Coca-Cola and like all I wanted when I was pregnant with her was Coca-Cola. It was really weird. It was really weird. Like just all I wanted, um, like burgers and stuff. Um, yeah, just foods that I never really, like I would eat but not crave like I did. Yeah, and I think my body was just like let's just get as much, um, as, as many calories as we can into you so that you can like support the growth of your baby here so I was enormous by the end of it I think I put on like 25 kilos but you know it was I needed to um yeah and I so labor um I went into labor on the Friday night I how long were you oh I was 40 40 weeks plus four days Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So when I got to 40 weeks, my midwife was like, um, uh, you could, she wasn't concerned. So this is a great thing about midwife group practice is that there was no talk of induction. There was no talk of induction because I was still within, um, normal range and I was low risk. There was, there was no issue in that regard. So it was sort of just me 
reading, you know, things on the internet where it was like, oh, like, do I do I need to have an induction or, you know, like, what's the go with that? And, and my midwife was like, look, if you want to hurry things along, there's a few old wives' tales that you can try. Like, she suggested eating pineapple. So I did. I think I ate one and a half pineapples and I was like, I can't. I can't eat any more pineapple. And it, it wasn't until I went actually went into labour like the next so – I think that was on like the Wednesday or the Thursday and then the, the Friday night slash Saturday morning at 2 a.m. is when I went into labour. So, I mean, this is the thing. I don't know if it was the pineapple because it was like she could have just been like, you know what, I'm ready. <laughs> so I woke up to um, – quite intense contractions actually um I was I was surprised and I I woke my partner I tried to go back to sleep and I couldn't and it was sort of like oh okay and in my mind I was like oh this is good like the contractions are stronger that means I'm gonna have my baby really soon yeah (laughs) um so anyway I woke my partner up and I I was like I I think it's happening he was like oh okay um I was like so good I'm just gonna get in the shower so there was sort of like an instinct to get into water straight away and warm water as well um so I got in the shower was just in there for ages um with the warm water running over my back and I actually didn't get to sleep I didn't get back to sleep at all so the whole day um was just me laboring basically like the sun rose and I was actually it was really interesting because at the time I obviously had no idea sort of what to expect in terms of labor patterns it was just sort of that very standardized you'll have like contractions and they'll increase as your baby gets closer to being born you know so um I remember actually being so tired and not being able to lie down because it was just too painful to lie down. But having the uh, fit ball, like the exercise ball out and actually like leaning over that um, so that I was um, like my head was sort of resting on my arms and I was able to actually fall asleep like that. And it wasn't until... I learnt more about birth with um, my second pregnancy that I realised that I was actually doing an instinctual position by wanting to go into that position because it was making room for Sylvie to turn around, being that she was posterior, so that all fours sort of positions where my belly's hanging down was able to create the space for her to sort of to move. I didn't know that at the time, but I thought that was kind of cool when I revisited that um, experience and was able to sort of make sense of what was happening. Um, so I look, I laboured until 8.30 on Saturday night and then it was like I started to get worried and it was there was nothing wrong. It was just because I didn't realise that it would go for so long. So in my mind and because of what I'd read, it was I knew first pregnancy, like first labours um, lasted were longer um, than subsequent um, labours. But in my mind, I was like, oh, like, she'll be born within sort of, you know, 16 to 20 hours. And when she wasn't, it was like, really? Like, and it, it, the contractions were starting to get more intense. And so I called my midwife, but she had actually attended a birth the day before. So I had my um, second midwife. Um, and... It, it was fine because I, I knew her 
so that that's a great thing about, about midwife group practices as a as a group of midwives usually like four or five and they work on a rotation but you you meet and get to know all of them so that if your primary midwife isn't available you still are with a familiar carer like a familiar person um so i was in contact with her and she really didn't want me to go to hospital she was like no 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 um when i told her what was happening she was like you you sound like you're doing really really well um and upon reflection i was but it was just the pain i i I remember i was crying on the phone to her and i was like it hurts so much like i don't i just wasn't prepared for the pain that i was feeling um so I eventually she she tried to talk me down for a while like I think there was about two or three phone calls to her and she she talked me out of coming to the hospital um she wanted me to stay at home for as long as possible and whatnot and then it was just like it hurts too much and I just I started to become afraid and I think that I had no you know self-trust at that point I didn't know what was happening so I couldn't trust what was happening and I just wanted someone like my midwife to to I guess, be there in person to, yeah, support me through that. So we showed up at the hospital. The car ride over was just the worst. It was so uncomfortable. I remember just being in the back seat with, like, my hand on the roof of the car trying to, like, maintain a standing position as much as I could in the back of, like, an SUV. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because lying down was just horrendous. So, yeah, anyway, yeah, we got there and I – managed to walk in and the contractions were quite sporadic as well. That was the other thing that I didn't know with um, posterior babies is that they can be quite intense and quite sporadic. So they don't really follow a general pattern. And I think that was where it sort of threw me off guard as well is that I was expecting there to be a more rhythmic pattern to them. Um, and the fact that there wasn't, it was sort of like, okay, I don't know what's happening. Um, so we got there and, checked in whatever and she showed up and then um I remember her asking me you know where the pain was and I was like you know it's in my back and she so I think what she was alluding to was that um so you know how um the hip squeeze can provide a lot of relief yeah I think she was sort of trying to do that but putting pressure on um my lower back where my sacrum was and like it was it actually made the pain worse and I remember saying to her like no no it it makes it worse um but she didn't tell me at that stage that that was because baby was posterior Mm. so I didn't expect to have like this back pain it was it was I would say that the back pain was actually the part that got me it wasn't the contractions. It was where I was feeling that pressure. And I, I've since learned that posterior babies can tend to push on, like, the nerves yeah. in your there, And it can, yeah, it took my breath away. Like, it was so intense. And I, that's why I think that's where it really shocked me because it was, like, everything that I've read, like, contractions are not like this at all. Like, I'm not feeling it in the front. I'm feeling it in the back. It is intense from the outset and it is just completely all over the place. So, anyway, um, the birth suite, so um, the birth pool that I was scheduled to um, go in had actually um, only just finished being used by another mum so I wasn't able to go straight up. 
um, they had to obviously clean out the suite and whatnot. So I got put in um, just like a, I, don't, I actually don't remember whether it was like a maternity room. It 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 just seemed like a normal hospital room, but it was it was huge though. There was like just a bed in the middle and then the shower over to the side. It was, it was quite big, and it was freezing. That was the other thing. It was so cold in there, um, and I. <laughs> So cold. And I just remember I just wanted like the temperature to be warmed up. But anyway, I, I was just too far gone at that point and I, I was in the shower. I got straight in the shower and um, was leaning over the ball. Again, that was like an instinctual thing to do and was just, yeah, like it was full on. And I remember actually um, I think I got to about 2 o'clock in the morning and then I, I was so I'd laboured for about four hours or three or so hours at the hospital and it just became unbearable. And I was exhausted because I'd been up for 24 hours at that point as well. And I remember like like I won an epidural and my midwife was like, are you sure? Like she did really well in that regard to try and facilitate um, a an intervention-free birth. I mean, I was leaving which is a form of intervention. She, she did her best to facilitate an intervention for you guys. But the thing that got me as well was the um, vaginal examinations. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. They brought on and made it worse. And I remember asking her, I don't know what I asked, but I remember asking, oh, can I just stand up for them? Like Because she would get me to lie down every time she did one and it was just so painful and she was like, oh, no, like you, you have to lie down for them. And there was no sort of questioning that from me. Like it wasn't like well, – I remember thinking in my head, well, why not? Like wouldn't it make more sense for me to stand up because if baby's head is descending, then you're going to get a more accurate sort of idea of how dilated I am. Anyway, she ended up being there, uh, I think it was maybe 12 hours. It was like about a 12-hour shift that she did. I ended up having a sorry, that's right. I ended up having an epidural, and the anesthetist came in, and she got annoyed at me because I wouldn't sit still, mm, um, and it it annoyed me. I just like, but me being how I was at the time, I just didn't speak up. But it was just sort of like, you aren't even wearing your scrubs, like you are still trying to get yourself dressed, and you're asking me to sit still. Like, no, are you having contractions? Like, yeah. Uh, anyway, she tried four times to get it in and couldn't. Um, she kept. I I did I did have um, I do have like a minor form of scoliosis, so this is probably where it was a bit tricky. But she kept hitting like a nerve, and I could feel it, and so she'd have to. Yeah, she it, it wasn't too bad, but she had to pull it out and start again. Oh. Um, but she was also at the end of her shift, so it was just it was all a big kerfuffle. But I remember when she put in the local anesthetic in my lower back it was like instant relief and I could actually handle the contractions because it numbed that back labor that I was having so it must have like blocked off the nerves that were being pushed on and a wish because in my head I was like oh I actually don't need an epidural this is fine this will do and I wish I'd said it out loud I wish I'd said that but I didn't so, um, Do you think they would have allowed that, though, not giving you the epidural? Because I feel like they would have just followed through with the procedure. I, or is that an option? Well, I mean, look, sterile water injections are given to ease 
um, back pain mm. in labour. So I think my midwife probably would have advocated for that. Like if I had said, actually, I'm good, <laughs> let's hold off on the actual epidural part, let's just go with the local anaesthetic here, I think she would have been like, oh, are you sure? Okay, no worries. Um I don't know about the anaesthetist, to be honest, but I think that the midwife probably would have gone along with that, definitely. Um, and actually, had I known that local anaesthetic was a pain relief option just on its own for that, I probably, you know, if I was better informed about that, I think I would have just said, hey, yep, that's, uh, let's try that and see how we go. So um I did. The head anaesthetist had to come in and do it eventually. I got it. Um, and he even had trouble. I don't know what was going on. My back's just fucked, I guess. But yeah. <laughs> he, came, he came in and he did it. And I, I was able to get some sleep. And then um, they let me know, like, we'll actually we'll break your waters. Because my water still hadn't broken. Um, we'll break your waters at about... Uh, I think it was 9.30 in the morning. So by that stage, um, another midwife from the group had come in and she checked me. She did a vaginal examination and was like, oh, she's posterior. And it was sort of like this revelation, I think, for the other midwife because it was like we probably could have, you know, shortened this labour had we not diagnosed because it's not a pathology it's just a variation of normal but had we you know recognized I suppose that this was baby's position earlier and then followed some sort of um you know sideline positions or whatnot to sort of help baby descend through the pelvis I think um labor would have been shortened a lot more so she immediately got me like on the um in a sideline position like with the peanut ball so that my legs were sort of able like they weren't fully open but they were um elevated enough that my pelvis was just um slightly like the opening to my pelvis was slightly different Mm -hmm. so that um sylvie could descend easier um and they still broke my waters and they were macronium stained but they there was no panic in regards to that i think that the midwife that came in and took over so she apparently was the midwife that midwives would go to (laughs) to have their babies so I think her skill um definitely made the situation uh, a lot more calm in that regard um because I I was like oh doesn't that mean that she's in distress and they were like well no not necessarily and I think upon reflection how that I know what I know I think in their minds it was like well she's posterior baby Labor's been going for quite a while. It's pretty normal. And the consistency of the macronium isn't anything to worry about. So, and the colour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really lucky to have, that's where I was really fortunate to have midwife group practice in that way, even though, like, I still gave birth in a hospital with, you know, some policies that aren't necessarily evidence-based, like the vaginal examinations, like routine ones, um, that is. And, yeah, so... My waters were broken at 9.30 and I had Sylvie at 10 past 10 nice. that morning. So, And she was tiny. I remember bringing her up through like my legs because I was obviously like in, you know, not flat on my back but sort of inclined because um, I didn't know that I could actually like sort of be vertical with an epidural. But 
I also didn't know that they could turn the epidural down. So I was like completely numb from the waist down. Like I could not feel anything. And I just sort of thought that was how it was supposed to be. But had I known that they could turn it down, um, I would have requested that because, yeah, it was like when you sleep during the night and you wake up and your arm is like absolutely dead. And it's like that real, yeah, that's what I was like from the waist down. It was really weird. Feeling. Um, How were you feeling once she was born? What was some of your inner dialogue at that point? Um. So, I spent my whole pregnancy not in denial but disconnected from myself. Mm-hmm. So I was very disconnected from myself for ten or so years leading up to that. So, her pregnancy, uh, it, it, there was a real um, inner conflict, I suppose, in my transition from maiden to mother. I mean, I fully embraced being a mother in that way. It was like, okay, I'm a mum now, whatever. But it was that reckoning within myself that um, I actually was completely disconnected and dissociated from my body. Mm. So I like logically knew that I was her mum, but there was that, there was a struggle there to bond, like that bond that you hear some women talk about. And I, I had it with my son. I did have the bond, that bond with my, with my second born, but I, yeah, it was a real struggle. And I, I put it down to um, my just habitual disconnection from myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but also by having interventions, yeah, like the epidural, which completely blocked off my natural oxytocin production. So, yeah, um, but I remember when the midwife passed her up to me and I, I just was like, you're tiny. I was enormous. Like, what? <laughs> maybe it was all, like, you know, the milkshakes and stuff. Like, because I just, yeah. But she had, like, a full head of this really, really dark brown hair. Oh, um, wow, so and, jealous. Oh, re- don't be, because I had horrendous heartburn, horrendous heartburn, but apparently, actually, it's an old wives' tale that yeah. ba- babies with hair have it, and I would just put it down to the fact that I was eating, like, hamburgers yeah. and drinking Coke, <laughs> like, that's definitely going to give you <laughs> Look, it probably was that. I actually had heartburn with my twins and I thought for sure I was going to get a baby with hair because of it, but no, not one. <laughs> they were all bald. So I can confirm that it is simply just an old wives' tale. <laughs> my partner, he has, like, um, really thick hair and I, I was bald. As any, I was bald until I was, like, six weeks old, I think. Um, yeah, so when she came out with that, and she had quite dark features too, like um, – like darker eyebrows, darker eye, uh, like eyelashes. Um, I mean, as much as you can on a newborn. But I have really fair features by comparison, so that was quite a surprise to me. But she was so tiny, and yeah, I think I think she was about two point. Oh, she was two point nine kilos or two point eight kilos. So that was the next thing because she was under three kilos. Apparently, there's like a threshold where they um, like worry about babies' well-being if they're under three kilos. So I, I was little. I was only about six pounds six, and my partner was about the same when he was born. So we just sort of put it down to genetics. Um, I, I actually don't know how much truth there is to that um, because 
my son was like eight pound fifteen. Oh wow! <laughs> oh yeah. So I don't know how much truth there is to your baby size is dependent on how big you are or whatever. Um, but yeah, that she had to do these heel prick tests like every two or three hours to check her blood sugars, but she was fine every time. Um, but I was I was so fortunate that I was able to um, breastfeed. Um, like straight off the bat with her I had no oh I had a little bit of a latch issue but that was just I think her latch was just a little bit shallow but I had no issue with milk production um she overate actually I think um when they just suckle for comfort like she wasn't just like suckling she was actually like eating while she was trying to comfort herself so she'd be on each boob for like 45 minutes (laughs) so I I yeah it was a lot. But she was like, she'd throw up afterwards. So it was like, yeah, no, this is this is too much. It's not just like a little bit of a chuck. She was <laughs> so much. Um, but I was really fortunate in that way that I was able to um, breastfeed despite, you know, having an epidural and that because it can impact on your breastfeeding journey. So, yeah, and, I mean, she was a fiend for the boob though for, for years. I actually, um, it wasn't until I fell pregnant with my son um and I tried so hard to sort of um, push through the aversion that I got to breastfeeding when I was pregnant with him. But I um, I ended up, I think it was about the, yeah, like the two-month mark I had to give up breastfeeding, like two months pregnant with my son. I had to give up breastfeeding my daughter because it just got too much. It was just so icky, like it was an ick. And I, I hate saying that. But it was just, yeah, it was full on. So I mean, it's pretty normal. I know lots of mamas who have experienced it. I yeah. had it with the twins. You did? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I got to a point with them where it was like I was so angry that I had to feel yes. them, you know? So Yeah, yeah. I happen. tried like magnesium and just ignoring it. And like, yeah, it just it got yeah. too much. How old was she? She was two years and three months. Oh, so, yeah. Well, she was probably yeah. ready anyway to win. Yeah, I was I was really glad um, and grateful that I got to have that experience. And, I mean, at that stage it was only just sort of like um, just before bed, like after mm. kindy, sort of just before bed, sort of anyway. So, And she took it, she took it really well Yeah, as well. I think so. that's your body's way of showing you that it's time to wean though, you know. Like yeah. the aversion comes as a signal that breastfeeding yeah. is ending. Yeah, yeah. So she, she did. And I, I, like I offered her cuddles and stuff. There was never any like, um, you know, some kids, that, you know, they get really upset and whatnot. She, she didn't though. She was, she was pretty. pretty good. She was pretty, she took it well. So I think there was maybe that, yeah, that sort of, um, dynamic there where she was sort of like oh well I was just doing it because I could you know not because I need I needed to so yeah Yeah, awesome and how was your pregnancy with your son oh completely different right different (laughs) so um I fell pregnant with him around the same time of year that I fell pregnant with my daughter so they're born like he's born at the beginning of March and she's born at the end Mm -hmm. um and he was actually born at 40 day uh, 40 weeks plus five so I think that just based on my two pregnancies, um, my two, you know, uh, live birth pregnancies, um, that I would probably go to about nearly 41 weeks anyway. Like that would be my normal. Mm-hmm. It was actually really funny because <laughs> my partner knew that I was pregnant before I, I knew. Um, I remember feeling tired, tired but I also 
have been doing my uni degree while <clears throat> having babies. <laughs> so I just put it down to like, oh, it's just that season where I'm, you know, one of the halfway through the semester, I've had enough. I'm just feeling the pressure because um, I'm studying full time or whatnot. And he was like, oh, you're probably pregnant. He's like, no, nah, I reckon you are. Um, and I asked him later on, I was like, what was it? And he's like, you just, you were just different. And I was like, okay, but how? And he just, he, he didn't really know how to articulate it. He's like, I don't know. You just were like, I just, I knew you were pregnant. So I was like, okay, that's helpful. <laughs> anyway. So I did a pregnancy test just to kind of be like, see, I'm not pregnant. And then when I saw that it was positive, I was like, no, no, this is, this is wrong. <laughs> I'm not pregnant and I was like um turns out I was absolutely pregnant um and I I told um my daughter actually I was like oh, I've got something to tell you because my partner was in the kitchen and she was in the lounge room with me and I was like there's a baby in mummy's tummy and she's like what I was like there's a baby in mummy's tummy do you want to go tell dad and she was like daddy daddy and she was so excited that she like you couldn't understand what she was saying. <laughs> and she's like, there's a bag of mommy's toy. And he's just looking at her like, what, what? What are you saying? And then she said it again and he looked at me and I was like, yeah, you were right. And he was like, oh. And it was just sort of, we were both so tired that it wasn't like this overjoyed, oh, my God, kind of celebration. It was just like, yeah, I knew it. Like, <laughs> I knew you were pregnant. I told you. Um, and, yeah, it was that was sort of how we found out. Um, and I remember sort of that first sort of week that I was pregnant, it was like, okay, this is happening again. I, sort of just going through in my head, like, I, I don't want this to be like it was last time. Like, this has to be different this time. And I need to make sure that I am taking the steps necessary to make it different um, so that it is actually in line with what I want. Um, so, oh, yeah, that's what I forgot to say. So, with yeah, with my daughter, I never actually got to go up into the birth suite because by the time they said, you know, like the room is ready, I was just, yeah, too far gone at that point. So um, this time with my son it was just like, yeah, no, I really need to make sure I have a better plan in mind, especially like if my first option doesn't work out I need to have um, a, a plan B so that you know I'm still able to I guess have the birth that I wanted to have without you know things happen things can happen that are unexpected but I didn't want to go into it completely blindsided so um, I had found like a great family doctor in that in the meantime uh, since we moved over to the Bayside I had found a, a doctor that was um, good for me but also good for my daughter as well um, for her, like, vaccinations and whatever else she needed to see the doctor for. Um, so she she was really good because she um, – that's right, she was accredited. So she attended, like, regular conferences on antenatal care. So she was up to date with sort of the most evidence-based practices in regards to antenatal care. So unfortunately – because I had moved over to the Bayside, I wasn't in the catchment for MARTA anymore, so I couldn't access midwife group practice through them. And I was actually in the catchment for Redlands Hospital, which meant that I was only eligible for GP 
shared care because midwife group practice um, at Redlands and uh, Ipswich and Logan, I think it is, um, they are actually, it's actually only reserved for First Nations women or women under 20. Um, yeah, because they don't have as many, I, I suppose, resources as MARTA. So uh, basically I actually never saw a midwife through um, his antenatal care. I saw a different obstetrician every time, which was awesome. I say that with <laughs> sincere sarcasm yeah. because it, it absolutely sucked. Um, I'll, I'll get to that though. So I found out I was pregnant. I um, really tuned into myself this time though. So my lifestyle leading up to his pregnancy was really different. Like I um, – inadvertently sort of was vegetarian not not for any other reason other than like I just preferred that sort of food um so I I was coming from a coming into this pregnancy from a completely different um health perspective as well like within myself and also you know what what I needed um so I was a lot more tuned in to myself a lot more connected to myself in that way so when it came time for me to you know have my dating scan which I, I didn't actually really want to have but at this stage I still wasn't sure of what my options were in regards to antenatal care so when I spoke to my doctor she's like oh how far along do you think you are that's right I I, I was about I was six weeks when I found out so I was six weeks actually uh, five weeks sorry with every pregnancy I knew at five weeks that I was pregnant and um I actually waited until I was eight weeks to do anything about it <laughs> with my son. When she asked me, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm eight weeks. And she was like, oh, are you? And I was like, yeah, like I, I know I am. Um, I just, it was like an intuitive feeling. And when I went and had my ultrasound, they wanted to know how far along I was on the form. And I said like eight and a half weeks. And I remember with, my, with um, Sylvia I had to have, um, I think, maybe because of where the placenta was, I had to have like a transvaginal ultrasound. So they couldn't pick her up on the one through my belly. So they had to do the probe, um, which I remember just being really uncomfortable. And this time around, I, I didn't want it either. And I said, on the form, it asks you if you consent to it. And I circled no. And then when we were in the, oh, when I, sorry, was in the ultrasound room, so my partner was at work and Sylvia was at kindy, um, I think she was having, I mean, it didn't look unclear on the screen and she wasn't exactly having too much trouble figuring out the measurements and whatnot. But she said to me, even after reading my form, she was like, oh, um, is it all right if we do like the probe? It just makes it easier for them to, something to do with the measurements. And I agreed and immediately regretted it. But anyway, so we did that and she was like, I, oh, yeah, eight and a half weeks along. And I was like, yeah, yeah, in my mind, I'm like, yes, I know. I put that on my form, like, thank you. <laughs> and I remember leaving that dating scan just being like, why? Why did you say yes to that probe when you had circled no on the form? Why did you not stand up for yourself? And I, like, gave myself this little pep talk on the walk back to the car, like, girl, if this is how you are going to handle a bloody dating scan, like, how the hell are you going to handle labour and birth in the hospital again when you can't even like, advocate for yourself at an eight-week dating scan? Yeah. And it was this really um, 
profound moment where it was like, okay, I have an issue speaking up. I have an issue advocating for myself because I don't want to upset anyone. I want to be a good girl. Yeah. I don't want to cause any drama. And, you know, especially reflecting on her reasons why she wanted to do the probe, it was just sort of like that was not woman-centred care. It was all about making it easier for whoever they were Mm. to – look at the ultrasound images it wasn't about my well-being in that moment it was about the convenience of other providers so it was that it was this moment where it was like right you need to figure out what you're going to do here and how you're going to change this um approach to this pregnancy otherwise it's it's not going to go very well so I started researching home birth options and I found quite a few that we're quite limited on the baseline actually as to home birth midwives. So um, my first choice was actually um, Rangi Marine who is located in, I think she's in Thornlands and she's um, recommended quite widely by lots of other midwives, but she was actually going on annual leave because um, my son's due date was at the end of February um, and she was on annual leave during February. So that kind of was starting to work. So I remember contacting, like, being so desperate to find, like, home birth options. I contacted this place on the Sunshine Coast and they were like, you know, yeah, we can, um, we've got room. But I think it was going to cost me something like $8,000 to go through them, which was just completely inaccessible. Um, and then I ended up getting in contact with um, It Takes a Village midwifery, um, but the closest uh, midwife was based in Ipswich still. So I think it was it worked out to be that it was going to be something like $6,500 and it just, it just wasn't an accessible option for us um, this time around. And had I known about home birth with my daughter, like I, I would have, I would have um, gone with that option because we did have the financial means to do that at the time. But, yeah, with my son it was just like we don't have that option. So I remember driving in the car that my partner was driving and I remember talking to him about this and being like it's going to cost us this much um, and we don't have that. And then I just looked at him and I was like, so I'm I'm just going to do it myself. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'm just. Amazing. I'm not going to hospital. Um, there's no way that I – there's no option for me to have, you know, like um, midwifery continuity of care and I'm not risking um, standardised care through the hospital because, um, yeah, that just obviously – and, you know, for some people it does work out, but I just knew it wasn't going to be the right option for me. Yeah. And so he was like, oh, but, you know – the usual, oh, well, who's who's going to deliver the baby? And I was like, me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I will deliver my baby. Like, what do you mean? Yeah. And I was I was pretty harsh with him because he wasn't on board straight away. Like, I, th- I definitely had this expectation. It was like, well, you should be like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and, you you know, he wasn't because mm. obviously, you know, there, there was that social conditioning that we both had to unlearn. So it was just this moment of yeah reckoning where it was like well I'm I this is our only option like unless we can come up with x amount of dollars um 
I'm, you know, it's either we go to hospital or I go to hospital and have him there or I um, have him at home. We just do it at home ourselves. And so um, I spent like the first, it was about 11 weeks um, that I was really sick with him. And after that sort of initial sickness wore off, um, I started researching. But I remember like that first trimester, like, um, just the weirdest things made me throw up. Like my partner cooking sausages one night, and I came out of the shower and I just immediately started vomiting. <laughs> sausages, yuck. Like normally, like I didn't have a problem with it, but it just, yeah, horrendous. And all I wanted was um, watermelon and cucumber and mint blended up with heaps of ice. So that was like my hydration drink because water just made me like, gave me sort of like heartburn, like that, you know that um not reflux but that like sort of acidic feeling so yeah it was just completely different like I just all I wanted was like berries and nuts and this watermelon drink so that was interesting a big turn a big change from coca-cola and hamburgers (laughs) um but I remember like just being so over it by 10 10 weeks it might be 10 10 and a half weeks and I was like man if this is not if this vomiting doesn't stop by 11 weeks, I'm going to have to probably seek a second opinion because it's just, it's, I was starting to become concerned by how often I was throwing up. Um, so I basically said to myself, look, if it hasn't settled down at least by 11 weeks, then yeah, I'll get a second opinion. And I swear like 11 weeks to the day, it just like stopped. Nice. <laughs> the vomiting stopped. I still felt like it took me a while to sort of come back into the daily routine because I was just tired. Um, but, yeah, it stopped on 11 weeks, which was great. I was quite shocked, actually, by that. Um, and, yeah, then it was sort of from there on out, I, I was still studying at uni and it was um, – I just spent, you know, my spare time or, like, in between my study, I would just research. So um, I can't – remember actually no i think i started looking up podcasts and your podcast was the first one i came upon or one of the first ones i came upon and listened to consistently throughout my pregnancy and i think it was like various episodes that i listened to where um rachel dr rachel reed was mentioned and um what's her name sarah buckley Mm -hmm. um yeah, yeah, and just listening to um, other women's uh, experiences with um, this sort of evidence-based information, and I, I remember I can't, I can't remember exactly how I got onto Dr. Rachel Reed's blog, but like I basically just like ate that up. She was on the show. That's what it was. Okay, she yeah. was. Yes, that well, that's how it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's incredible, yeah. and her blog is one of the top resources I recommend. Oh, absolutely incredible! And I just devoured it. I absolutely devoured it, and it was just this revelation after revelation after revelation. <laughs> um, and then, obviously, from there, I found the Midwives Cauldron podcast, mm. and was listening to all of the guests that they had on there, um, particularly like the one with Sarah Buckley and. Um, discussing the, you know, the importance of hormones and how they work, particularly during labour and birth and whatnot. And as I think I got to about the six or seven month mark, it was like it became a reality that I was going to be free birthing him mm-hmm. at home. And I wanted a birth pool. I wanted to, and I was looking into birth pool higher for ages and just 
everywhere it was um, like backlogged or so, they were sold out, like you couldn't hire them or whatever. And anyway, I ended up finding a page and then my mum surprised me by buying me a birth pool. Oh, nice. Which was, yeah, which was really cool because she was just like, what? Like when I told her that we were just doing it at home, she was just like immediately responding with like fear. Yeah. Like, oh, but what if this happens? What if this happens? And there were a few times where it was like, you just shut the fuck up. Like I know what I'm doing <laughs> with respect, you know, like like part of me was just like I wouldn't be doing this if I was like if I if I thought that um, it was unsafe. Like if there was a medically indicated issue during my pregnancy like I'm not I'm not anti-medicine I I, you know I would have absolutely looked at um the benefits and the risks associated with it and made an informed decision based on that but it was just like I was I was healthy there was no risk whatsoever well no the lowest risk possible um and yeah so she surprised me by buying the birth pool which was really cool because it was like okay she's on board with this which is just yeah and she said to me, like, after, you know, a little while after, she was like, oh, you know, Dad and I knew that <laughs> there was no change in your mind. Like, we knew that you were going to be doing what you said you were going to be doing. So, you know, um, you know, we trusted that you had done the work as well. Like, we knew you worked really hard. So I think that was sort of where we, we came to um, a happy medium with that. Um yeah, so she surprised me by getting the birth pool, which was really cool because I was stressing a little bit about that. Um, I spent – his pregnancy was totally different. Like, I was a lot more active. Um, I would go walking most days. I um, So we rent, like, a quarter-acre block um, by the bay, and, like, there's – it's a, a pretty massive front yard and backyard, and being, like, I was – coming into like the warmer weather like it needs mowing regularly so I think I mowed that lawn up until I physically couldn't anymore so I think I was about eight eight and a half months pregnant when I was like I can't mow the lawn anymore (laughs) I can't do it but like I was more than happy to just yeah spend an hour and a half mowing the lawn while like quite heavily pregnant yeah it was one of the I was completely different I just I wanted to be active and I I wanted to eat really good foods as well so um actually another resource that I came across um uh well I came across Jane Hardwicky Collins as well I think you had her on the show as well yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so it was your podcast that started this all. so it's <laughs> quite um quite awesome to do like come 360 and be be on it myself yes oh, um, I love that yeah um so Dr. Rachel Reed and then Jane Hardwicky Collins. And then I, I found her, um, I read her book, Ten Moons, and I also um, downloaded like her shamanic meditation to meet your baby. Yeah. And, I, yeah, I was a little bit sceptical at first, um, not because I didn't believe in it, but it was like, that ritualized disconnection that I had had from my body Mm. and then obviously doing a shamanic meditation to meet my baby was just completely the opposite end of the spectrum and I mean you know like it it was incredible I did meet him you know he told me exactly um what he wanted me to be eating like the nuts and the berries like it was just it was super weird and that that's exactly what I was craving like that just real fresh raw food 
Um, but it was also, you know, just asking him questions like, where do you want to be born? And, you know, it was, uh, he, he wanted to be born at home. You know, that was a resounding um, affirmation throughout those journeys. And I did ask him at one point what he wanted to be named. And I, it's so weird. I had like this old wizard man appear that kept saying like love. And then he was repeating the name Voltaire. So I don't know if you've heard of Voltaire. No. He was a uh, French philosopher back in like the 18th century. And um, he did a lot of sort of satirical uh, philosophy. So he was extremely critical of like religion, um, like dominant religion, like Christianity and Catholicism and that. But anyway, this name kept repeating itself. And every time I asked my son, what he wanted to be called. That was the response I was getting and I was like, I'm not calling you Voltaire. So <laughs> Voltaire is actually um, the philosopher's nickname. So his real name was Jean-Francois Arouet and he, um, his, I think his father gave him like a nickname and then he rearranged the letters to make it Voltaire, um, which meant, which translates loosely to determined little thing oh, okay. because he would always go against like his father's desires and wishes so that was his nickname and this is what kept coming through in this bloody shamanic meditation from my son and I was like what like I'm not calling you that as a <laughs> well we ended up giving it to him as one of his middle names because it I I just felt like like it's super weird but it was like I feel like I would be doing you a disservice by ignoring this desire of yours to have this as as one of your name as at least one of your names so anyway we settled on that happy medium but um yeah he basically just would communicate various things to me and it was really interesting I didn't expect it to be as profound and informative as it was um and I think I only did it maybe like once a week um uh but yeah he gave me all of the information I needed really and yeah, so I had um, my, I think it was monthly appointments with a different obstetrician every time. And um, it was really challenging. It was like an uphill battle every appointment. Um, so in my first pregnancy, I don't know why, but blood tests, I've never had an aversion to blood tests. I have piercings in my face like multiple piercings in my face I have many many tattoos I've never had an issue with needles uh, or blood tests and yet when I was pregnant suddenly that just went out the door and I just became a wreck I don't know why it was really weird um yeah I'd get really faint and then it would like sugar wouldn't help it wasn't like it was a, a blood pressure thing or a blood sugar thing sorry it just I just felt really ill and it would take me days to recover. It was so weird. So, um, yeah, I never actually had the glucose test um, at all in either of my pregnancies. Um, in my first pregnancy, I asked my midwife, weighed up the benefits and the risks and decided not to have it. Um, and I, I, with the second one, it was just after also reading about, you know, Rachel Reed's, um, the research that she had um analyzed and, and broken down and shared it was sort of just like it's uh, look the the um doing nothing actually outweighs the risk uh, i'm not a, a, a high risk candidate in that regard so i decided not to have it again but they insisted i have one to know my blood type 
um, even though it was on my file. <laughs> but anyway, so that was a bit of an uphill battle. Um, and having to sort of explain my, not my history, but just having to sort of go in and retell my story every single time I had an appointment was really shitty. Like it just, it was really impersonal and sort of, um, I felt that it really um, amplified that disconnection between not only the provider but that disconnection between like my body as well like it wasn't I I wasn't treated as like a unique um client it was you know sort of you just very standardized you're just another another number basically um so I remember actually I had a student OB and she was amazing um she was it was really interesting actually like she she listened to me. She actually did um, give me woman-centred care. It was really interesting because she was only a student. Um, but, yeah, she I, I remember, like, she was doing fundal massage just to sort of try and um, ascertain baby's position. And I was like, oh, I, I think I know, you know, where he is. And I said, but, yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I'm still sort of learning to connect with him in that way and she was like oh man like midwives are you know like the bees need to do this and just absolutely um praised midwives you know which was really interesting because you don't normally get that from an OB well in my experience with obstetricians they don't see themselves as um the medical side of birth they sort of see themselves as the authority of birth rather than, yeah, and midwives are sort of like their handmaidens in a way. Like, yeah, so it was really interesting. And I, I think about her a lot, actually, and I hope she's managed to maintain that disposition because it made such a massive difference to how I experienced that appointment. And I think as well, like, um, it would be nice to know that other people got to experience, like, woman-centred care from her as well. So, um she was more receptive to me not wanting to have blood tests and whatnot, but other other OBs were sort of like just trying to find different ways for me to have the test. And anyway, I got to my last appointment, which was actually, I think I was like 39, was I 30? No, no, I was 40 weeks. So it was my 40-week appointment and a different OB again. And I got in and the first thing she said to me was, um, all right, so let's talk about, so we'll probably look at scheduling and induction for next week, which just completely threw me off guard because I've never had an induction talk prior, like in my last pregnancy. But also that was like the first thing she said to me. I was like, what do you mean? I'm only just, I'm 40 weeks today. And she, oh, no, I was, I think I was 40 plus two, 40, 40 plus three. And she was like, yeah, no, well, it's just policy. Um, you're already 40, you know, just over 40 weeks. Um, the risk increases once you go over 40 weeks. And at this point it was just like, right, so me having spent, like, my entire pregnancy up until pretty much my entire pregnancy up until this point, like, just reading everything I possibly could about evidence-based care, I <laughs> proudly, I say this with um, – you know, a little bit of hesitation, but I absolutely wiped the floor with this woman. Oh, really? She just like <clears throat> I was like, well, what, what, what risk? And she was, I said, well, what's the risk? 
And she couldn't really tell me what the risk was. And then I was like, okay, so when you say it increases, what's – I think she said it doubles. She's like, your risk doubles but wouldn't tell me what the risk was or what the actual, like, numbers were. So, like, I don't know, for example, for example, one in a thousand and two in a thousand. Like, she didn't have that information and she just kept saying, I don't have that information on me. And I just wanted to be like, you're sitting in front of a computer, like, look it up. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and there was this, like, really bitchy part of me that was like, well, go look for it. I'll wait. you know but I was like no don't be like that you know but at this stage it was just I was so sick you know no shape on obstetricians they are extremely skilled at what they do but they are trained in the management of pathological birth or pathological issues that arise during pregnancy and birth they are not trained in low risk physiological birth and it just, it really frustrated me and I was just really at my wits end by, the, I mean, I'm 40 weeks pregnant, like, I don't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> at this point, you're just wasting my time. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so, uh, and she just, yeah, basically just kept telling me that, oh, what else was there? It, it, it was just, yeah, all these your risk doubles and we have to induce you and blah, 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 blah. When did you actually go into labour? Oh, okay. So as a result of this appointment, I became super stressed. So I like my neck was all stiff and everything. So I called my chiropractor, who I had actually been seeing um, since my daughter was about six months old because I, I had like these neck problems for ages. And anyway, um, basically found him and he just fixed me right up. So I've been seeing him for a really long time at that point and I called him and I was like, they're threatening to induce me and I'm all tense. I need to come in for an adjustment. <laughs> so I went into him and um, he um, had done many adjustments on pregnant women um, and was joking the whole time that, you know, he hoped I would make it home before going into labour. Um, and then I made it home. Um he basically just made uh, helped my uh, realign my pelvis, so it was symmetrical and just yeah, fixed me right up. Made it home, no worries. And then so that was Thursday. So I had my appointment on the Tuesday. I managed to get in. Oh, was it Thursday? Yeah, yeah. So I managed to get in and see him. Sorry, on the Wednesday, and then on the Thursday night slash Friday morning. I woke up at about 3 a.m. I didn't look at the clock, but I think, judging by the light, it was about 3 a.m. And I um, had light, light contractions. Just curious, did any fears arise in that moment? No, because I had um, accepted that it is impossible to completely annihilate fear. Mm. It's impossible to completely remove it. I know that there's a lot of hypnobirthing um, classes that teach this removal of fear and, like, overcoming fear. And it's, I mean, it's healthy to have a little bit of fear. It, it's it's human. Like, it's normal. You're about to experience um, an, an, a completely transformational rite of passage. I'd be concerned if there was no fear at yeah. all. Um, yeah, so it was sort of like, okay, this is happening. Um, this is it. I think I don't I don't know how to explain it. It was really it wasn't like I was walking around in a dream the entire pregnancy and then into the labor, but it was just 
this I think maybe it was what what you could probably call that just radical acceptance that this is how it was going to be and it wasn't going to be any other way and I think maybe that was what it was it was just this knowing because mm-hmm. um, I, I did do a lot of meditations throughout um, the pregnancy like I I, I struggled to find a lot, and then I came across this woman. Oh, just typing in, you know, keywords on YouTube. Um, came across this woman who did like um, yoga instructional videos, like quite um, advanced ones. But she had also done a couple of these guided meditations, and one was about fear and releasing fear. And I think my biggest one was, you know, death, which I think a lot of people, you know. Um, have to reconcile particularly when it comes to um birthing outside the system um and for a lot of people you know birthing within the system but yeah that was my biggest one is just like you know learning that uh anything is possible and even though it's unlikely it's not impossible and to just be able to accept that Mm. to accept that um yeah so when I my contractions started it was like oh yeah this is you know this is it but I'd also religiously listened to um childbirth as a rite of passage by Rachel Reed so yeah Eve's story in particular um and envisioned my labor unfolding like that as well um which it did um but also like my son he was anterior uh so he was in, I guess, well, not that it's entirely a correct terminology, but he was in what you would pro- probably call, what the medical profession would call an optimal position. So I didn't have like a prolonged labour that was, um, you know, fraught with intense back pain like I did with my daughter. So I went into labour. I well, Actually, I woke up. There was a few little contractions and I was able to get back to sleep. So I think I woke up again at like six and came out and, you know, my partner and daughter were, I think they'd gotten up or I went and woke them up and was like, oh, you know, I'm in labour, whatever. And it was Friday, so she was due to go to kindy. <clears throat> I think she actually, oh, no, I think, no, she stayed home that day. We kept her home because I didn't know how fast it was going to go. I didn't know how long the labour would last and I didn't want her to miss it as well. So that was another reason that sort of informed my decision to birth at home as well is that I didn't want her to think that, Babies, I mean, even though they do, uh, they are routinely born in hospital. I didn't want her to think that that was how it's supposed to be. Mm. So, um, yeah, we we kept her home that day. And I remember when she went down for her morning sleep, I was just in the kitchen with my partner and he was um, cleaning up and doing, I don't know, making food or something. We were just talking and I was just having contraptions and they started to ramp up a little bit. I remember sitting on the toilet, which was amazing. Like you read about it um, for dilation and labor progress, and it actually it was amazing. And I remember um, watching Bob's Burgers. I don't know if you've ever watched Bob's yeah. Burgers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember watching that on the toilet and just like laughing my head off, you know. So, um, you know, the house was just filled with oxytocin, which was awesome. Um, and yeah as things started to get a little bit more heated I remember wanting to get into the shower so I think it was about midday I got in the shower um with the warm water and my partner was um he took our daughter to the park 
Um, and actually, I remember like leading in my like uh, meditations and whatnot, leading up to Fern's birth. I remember like because it was really weird weather last March. I remember it was really hot in the day, but then it would storm heaps. Um, and we, it was really strange. Like towards the end of his pregnancy, we just had an influx of like kookaburras and crows visiting we've got this like 80 year old massive avocado tree in our backyard and we just had like this influx of kookaburras and crows visiting like all the time and yeah so um apparently kookaburras are when they um laugh it's just um it's there's a belief like an um an old legend that they uh, that means rain is coming and every single time these kookaburras would go off it would storm not long after so it was really, it was really, yeah, quite uh, magical actually. And I remember thinking to myself, I just want kookaburras and crows, and I want to be able to smell like wood, wood fire smoke because our neighbours have like a fire pit, and we've got a fire pit and whatever. So or like a little outdoor like where you can have an outdoor fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember just wanting to smell that while I was in. It was really weird, and wanting it to rain as well. So. Um, yeah, like I remember being in the shower, the hot water on my lower back and just like swaying, getting into that really rhythmic swaying. And I remember as everything intensified, I remember just saying out loud like, yes, open, like, yes, open, just over and over again and encouraging my body to open. Um, and I think – like learning to recognise that the pain um, is not like a pathological pain, that it's actually your body working at its absolute peak physiological performance Mm. was key to that. So like it hurt a lot, (laughs) but it was like it's a good pain, if that makes sense. And I remember listening to a podcast episode with Gail Tully from Spinning Babies and she was saying, you know, like if you envision labour and birth, like working out, like in the gym, like your muscles are burning and you're working really hard and, you know, if if more women were giving birth in a gym, they would probably find themselves much more capable than they'd ever considered themselves to be in that, in that aspect because it, it's, it's exactly like that. It's your body working at peak physiological performance. So I just kept reminding myself that, like, this is it. This is exactly how my body's supposed to be working. And, yeah, eventually um, – so once my – once Adam and Sylvie left, actually, things got really intense. So I actually needed to be alone. I needed the house to be empty. I just needed to be alone in my zone. Mm. And I, I remember feeling really sleepy. Like, it was that oxytocin, like, wonderland that you go into and it was it's kind of like it was kind of like being really stoned but (laughs) but but I just remember just being so tired and just wanting to lie down and go to sleep and I remember getting on the bed at one stage try and lie down and immediately getting up and being like nope that is way too painful my body does not want to be lying down um so yeah just in the shower and I remember actually asking Adam to bring me back musk because all I wanted was musk sticks. I don't know if it was the sugar. Um, I think that was a bit of a strategic decision there because I knew I just knew that I was going to throw up later on in transition. <laughs> so, 
I think throwing up musk sticks was actually like it wasn't that bad. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I the water started to cool up, and I was like, "Oh, can you feel the bath pull up?" Um, and he began filling it, but obviously because I'd used all the hot water, like I'd been in the shower for like four hours at this point, so the system did well. Um, but he was like, I remember him boiling like pots of water on the stove to put in the birth pool. Um, and he's running back and forth because at this point I needed um, like a hip squeeze. I needed the hip squeezes. So they were like heaven. They were honestly, I didn't think that such a simple action could bring so much relief in those moments. Um, so the poor guy is running back and forth like every minute and a half um to to help me out with these hip squeezes while trying to help me out by getting hot water into the birth pool um I actually had the Freya app mm-hmm. while I was in the shower so that I could time my contractions um I, I know there was a, a lady that was on your podcast that had um she had used it and that's where I heard of I heard of it and I I downloaded it and looked at it and it was yeah it was really a really good app and I know that you know um, it's not necessarily the contraction pattern, uh, like the duration between contractions or the duration of contractions that determines your progress. It's more like how effective your contractions are. But I still sort of wanted to gauge where I was at. Um, so I downloaded that and it just kept telling me that, like, in order for you to get into active labor, you have to have a contraction every whatever it was. And I just, I'd never quite get into active labor, but I knew that I was definitely in active labor, if that makes sense. Like I was making heaps of progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I remember I had a big contraction and like um, there was like, not my waters, but like it was this massive release of like, um, I, I think like blood and tissue, I suppose it was. I, I don't know. I, I was just in my zone at this point, but my um, Adam was like, you know, oh, there, you know, there was quite a bit of blood with that contraction and it was interesting because I could feel when Fern would make um like when he would move down more not that I could feel him but the contraction itself was had a different feel to it um so that sort of was a really good indication of um the progress that I was making and then I remember getting in the birth pool and to be honest, I wish I could have stayed in the shower, like just having that water, that moving water over my back. But getting in the birth pool was good. Um, and then I hit transition. Um, and I remember throwing up and immediately like coming back to reality and just like everything was so much more intense. It was exactly how, you know, I would read that it, it would go in that way, you know, like when you – that adrenaline kicks in, like you probably will throw up because it's just a lot for your body, but also like your your logical brain comes back online and then you're just like, holy shit, I am completely in it. Mm. Um, and that's exactly what it was and it was so intense. I was like, whoa, and I remember it was so funny. I remember just it being so intense and going, I think I want an epidural now. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, the stupid thing, it was just like, what are you doing? Like, you're not getting in a car. Like, you can't even get out of the birth. Like, it was just, I needed to say it out loud just to just get it out. Yeah, even though just there was no possibility that, that was going to And I was, there was no way I was getting in a car to go to the hospital anyway, but it was just like, I just needed to say it out loud so it sort of affirmed the intensity of the contractions. 
Um, yeah, and I, I actually, I was sort of half standing in the birth pool. I, I couldn't, it wasn't comfortable for me to be submerged, even though I, I wanted to be, like I wanted the water um, over my belly to sort of ease that pressure, but it just wasn't comfortable. So I remember like standing, um, semi-standing and gripping onto like the buffet because the birth pool was set up next to our bed and the buffet was next to our bed. And I remember holding this buffet and I was like, it was sort of like that, um, uh, almost like, um, oh, not Rebozo. Um, when women sling, um, they do it in um, various African countries and South American countries as well. Like they sling like a rope over the top of like a tree or a rafter and then the women pull down on it. Yeah. yeah I was like using the buffet like that. And I was like, mm. this, thing fall, this thing doesn't fall over. Because um, I just remember like, yeah gripping on and pulling on it almost like a counter to the push mm-hmm. that my body was experiencing like this push yeah um but yeah once that transition hit it was just like it was so strange it, when when you hear women say that like your body does the pushing for you it absolutely does and it is the most bizarre feeling um especially when I when I had to throw up it was this like tug of war between my body going, well, look, we need to throw up because there's just too much going on here, but also we need to push. So it was like, it was really weird because my logic, it was like my, my logical brain was observing this as an outsider. And it's so hard to explain, but like I, I I needed to throw up, but then I also have a contraction. (laughs) So yeah. And it was, it was absolutely incredible to witness though. Like, the capability of my body, like it just knew what to do. Um, and I just needed to make sure my brain, you know, stayed quiet. So I remember looking up at a couple of affirmation cards that I had um, and they were affirmations that came to me during the shamanic meditation. So I just drew up three little cards and had written patience, surrender and trust on them. And I just remember looking up at them and just like, visualizing them as the contractions were happening because they were so intense at this point and then I I, yeah it was it was full on I remember him as he started to crown um feeling that like ring of fire it was so intense and my mum actually arrived as he was as he was crowning um to you know hang out with my with my daughter who was I think she was watching like Bing or something on ABC Kids in the in the in the study. So she was fine. She was just chilling. Here's me like screaming my head off at this point. Um, and it really was. It was I, I needed to um, to that low sort of moan um, and that um, growling almost. That yeah, just to sort of move that energy. And I, I remember actually when he was crowning and that sting that my my screen going upwards like as the energy sort of drew upwards so you know how your body sort of slows down as they crown to try and it's like a protective mechanism to protect your perineum so I definitely felt that hesitancy like I did not want to push as he was crowning because of the the burn but I felt that that energy go upwards um and so that came out in my vocalizations and I did I did actually push like consciously push him out because I I didn't I didn't think that 
him crowning would be as intense as it was. And I think I think I think I thought that because I envisioned it happening in water, where I wouldn't feel I sort of didn't think that I would feel it as much, if that makes sense. And like listening to other others' experiences on having water births um, compared to land births, um, there seems to be a general consensus that crowning isn't as intense when it's in water mm. as opposed to being, yeah, being out of water. So I think that's where it sort of like that caught me off guard a bit and so I did consciously push because at that point it was like just get out. <laughs> but, I, yeah, and I, I did, I pushed pretty hard to get his head out. But um, I remember, you know, just constantly being like, is his head out? Is it out yet? <laughs> And Adam was like, yeah, yeah, it's out. He's, oh, he's so beautiful, babe, he's so beautiful. And then I felt him, I felt Fern move after um, his head was out to sort of get his shoulders in the right position. And I, 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 I remember saying out loud, like, are you moving him to Adam? And he was like, no, no, he's doing it himself. And he, he saw him, like, rotate. And then um, he came out to about his waist and then I just pulled him out the rest of the way because I'd had enough. By that point, I was, like, ready ready to have you out of my yeah. body now. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then I just, like, yeah, I the cord was around his neck a couple of times, um, which wasn't an issue. I just unwound it and sat down in the water and was just couldn't believe it. I was like, whoa, that, you know, that just happened. And uh, Silby was... Um, in the birth pool at this stage, she jumped in the birth pool and was just screaming with excitement. And my mum, my mum was panicking, and I'm like, "Film it, film, you know, film it." <laughs> and she's going, "What do we do now? What do we do now?" I'm like, "Nothing. We don't do anything. Shush. <laughs> just let me come back." Um, and yeah, he was he was so quiet. And I remember envisioning that I just wanted a peaceful birth. I was like, "I just want peace. I don't want interruptions. I don't want interventions. I just want peace." And he came out and he was peaceful. He was quiet. He was just taking it all in. Um, yeah, he was he was super chill when he came out. And then Did you feel that immediate connection with him? Oh yeah, absolutely. It was yeah. totally different to my daughter. Totally different. Um, it was just it was a very much a we did it. We yeah. we did it. You know, like you told me what you wanted, you told me what you needed. I did have done my absolute best to facilitate the conditions for this to happen and we've we've done it. We've we've done it together. So very much um uh a connection, a reconnection to my body, but also that um acknowledgement of the mother baby diet, how it's just it's it is inseparable. It, you can't have one without the other. Um and each informs the other. So, yeah, I, you know, Sarah Buckley explains it really well when she talks about the hormone cocktail and the hormone dance that occurs during labour and birth and how that sort of reinforces that mother-baby dyad. But, yeah, I absolutely felt that connection with him straight away and it was just like I still, when I look back on that, I'm like I still can't believe that we did that. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, like I'm still like what? I, I rebirthed him. That's crazy was I crazy am I crazy like yeah (laughs) it's it's a lot like that so I yeah I mean I got out of the birth pool after that and hopped on the bed and like within it wasn't long it would have been like within 10 minutes I felt like um a few contractions for his placenta to be born 
And then his placenta was born and it was bloody huge. It was huge. I was really surprised because my daughter's was really small. Um, and I actually thought that that may have been because of my lifestyle leading up to it. But I read somewhere, and it would be awesome if someone could confirm this because I haven't really found any information of it, but apparently the father determines the size of the placenta. Now, I don't know how much truth there is to that. Right. I've never heard of that before. But You've never heard of that either? No, it could be true. Yeah. I'll have to look into okay. it. So I, I don't know, <laughs> but I would love to know if that is true or mm. not. But, um, I mean, even if it was or wasn't, in my case – I definitely think the lifestyle factors uh, leading up to the pregnancies and during the pregnancies was a massive, you know, absolutely contributed to the health and well-being of the, their placentas and their size at birth. So my son was eight pound fifteen. Wow. And yeah, right. So when my daughter was born, I hadn't actually. I'd gotten like four zero clothes for her, and my mum had to race out and get like five zeros because four zeros were just enormous on her. So I remember, um, like, my mum was panicking quite a bit and she she kept, like, asking if we should call paramedics, call paramedics. And being in the state that I was, it was kind of just like a, yeah, whatever, just call paramedics. Um, and they ended up coming around just to check us. We were absolutely fine and I ended up going up to the hospital, which we had planned on doing anyway, but I'd actually planned on doing it the following day. But it didn't work out like that. Um, so... We ended up going up to the hospital and I took that five zeros with me and I remember the midwives laughing and being like, he's not going to fit in that, he's huge. <laughs> and I was like, oh, really? <laughs> anyway, so it turns out that I actually had a second degree tear, um, probably because I like consciously pushed to when he was crowning. Um, and I decided not to have that sutured um, because it wasn't, it was just in the tissues. It wasn't like through, um, and it was just sort of at the, the base of um, my vaginal opening. It wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't full, it wasn't full on enough that they needed to kind of reconstruct any, any, any of the um, tissues down there. And I just said, look, I'll, I'll, I'd rather not have it sutured. I'd rather just see how it goes. Um, but apart from that, um, yeah, it was it was pretty it was fine. There was no issues in regards to that. Um, I will just say though that I actually, and I am a rare case in this. I ended up with postpartum sepsis, um, and basically, no one could figure out what had caused it. So it took. I ended up going back into hospital two days later. So he was born on the Friday night at like 6.50, 6.50, 10 to 7 at night. Um, so his labour was a lot shorter than my daughter's. I think hers was about 32 hours in total and his was um, 15 hours in total. Um, so I didn't – I went back into the hospital on the Sunday um, with a really high fever and they started me on antibiotics and couldn't figure out what had happened. Yeah. And it – they were able to send off like a sample to um, a microbiologist at the Royal Brisbane Women's Hospital and apparently I um, had contracted it through my tear and it was like group A strep that had caused it, which is a bacteria that like just lives on our bodies all the time um, and, and never really ever causes an issue unless um, there's um like a laceration or something like that where um, 
a higher concentration or an abnormally high concentration of the bacteria is able to get into the bloodstream. Oh, my God. So I know. <laughs> so <laughs> had this dream free birth and that ended up with bloody sepsis. But, you know, I, I was fine. Um, I, I was fine. And so what do um, they do for that? Antibiotics, I'm assuming? Uh, yeah, yeah. So at first they couldn't figure out what it was. So they had me on one particular course of antibiotics and then I – I, I wasn't actually septic when I went in, but I became septic while I was on this first course of the first type of antibiotics because they thought I had a retained placenta, um, which I didn't and I knew I didn't, um, but they just couldn't figure out what it was. So then when they realised I was septic, they changed the antibiotics and I just had to stay on an IV drip for like, I think it was like three days or something. It was pretty shit because I'd made all like this broth and like um, lentils and all this sort of stuff for my postpartum food and I had to eat this horrendous hospital food that just uh, it was just awful and being like stuck in like the air con in there as well like my skin was all dry and like, it was just yeah not the ideal place to be after you've had um a baby um uh, regardless of how you've had a baby um but I was yeah I was able to come home I think it was on the Tuesday so I went on the Sunday and I came home on the Tuesday and had to just maintain, um, like, oral antibiotics. But, yeah, they needed to hit me pretty hard. Um, but it, it was it was fine. Like, it didn't affect my breastfeeding journey or anything. I had fern because um, I was in the maternity ward with that because, obviously, I had a newborn. So I was able to room in with him. And yeah, it was fine. It just wasn't the most ideal start. But I will say that it, my postpartum, like, my immediate postpartum was the only aspect of that entire pregnancy labor birth journey that I didn't have a plan for um and I will absolutely say that that is a testament to birth plans I think I had like plans a through to e for his birth ranging from completely undisturbed physiological free birth at home to emergency cesarean where I was not able to have contact with him afterwards like I was so prepared Mm. For every possible situation, um, but I didn't. I, I mean, I made food for postpartum, um, and I sort of had an idea of how I wanted that immediate postpartum, you know, stage to go. When I say immediate, like those first few days, but I, I didn't have a, a direct plan of like um, once he was born, you know, we will only call paramedics if there are issues. Um, and we'll go to the hospital the following day for just a, a checkup to make sure everything, make sure everything's all right. Like I didn't have a definitive plan like that, and so I was kind of at the mercy of whatever was happening in the moment. Um, and yeah, I think that that, not that that had anything to do with the sepsis, but it definitely impacted on, um, you know, like having paramedics come over like as soon as he was born. And, yeah, that sort of a thing. So I would have preferred that not to happen because it didn't need to happen. Um, yeah, but, I mean, it was what it was. So. Yeah, yeah. And to wrap up the episode, what would be your key piece of advice for any expectant mothers out there? So I um, wrote down a few things because yeah, awesome. my neurodivergent brain can't just come up with one thing. Feels. Um <laughs> I think the the biggest, if I were to give one piece of advice, it would be to cultivate self-trust. So 
within that, there's a lot, though. So cultivating self-trust within yourself allows you to really know yourself. And it's a big thing to do because it requires that you unpack everything that you have been conditioned to learn about birth and your body um, in order to relearn um, how to listen to your intuition and honour your intuition. So there's that aspect to it. But I think as well within that, it's knowing your boundaries. So knowing what to do, um, like especially if you're having a hospital birth, don't, don't just assume that you'll give birth the way that is based on the norm. Uh, I think that the key to having the birth that you want is actually starting by asking yourself how you want to give birth, not, okay, well, which hospital am I going to give birth in? Mm-hmm. Instead of yeah, instead of asking yourself, oh, well, okay, I'm pregnant, cool, which hospital am I going to give birth in? It's, well, how do I actually see myself giving birth? And, you know, imagining your wildest dreams and ideal scenarios. So if that's in the wilderness, under the stars, with no drugs, um, then go for it. <laughs> um, f- figure out what it will take to have that birth. But if um, that isn't logistically possible, then, you know, figuring out how to um, – have that experience that is within your means. So it might be an undisturbed water birth surrounded by fairy lights, for example. But I think the most important thing is cultivating that self-trust and knowing your boundaries in that regard, especially in a hospital setting because you're going to be surrounded by people who aren't necessarily aware of their energetic impact on the space. So, you know, when you're in labour and birth, you are going to experience fears. Fears are going to come up. Even if you've, you know, tried to deal with them during pregnancy and whatnot and you've done lots of preparatory work to deal with them and that, they're still going to come up during labour and birth because you're you're literally, like, um, transcending realms. So it's only normal for that to happen. But you've also got to consider that other people are bringing their fear into that space. So if you don't have self-trust and you don't know how to advocate boundaries for your birth partner, because ideally your birth partner will be advocating that for you so you can do your thing, if they haven't done that in a work either, then you're kind of at the mercy of other people's fears about birth and they're what they want to do to <clears throat> minimise or standardise you know, your care. Um, the other thing that I would say is that pregnancy is a time of expansion and growth and that there are things that will change. Like for me, so much change. Like I, relationships in particular and my values about different things in the world. Like I lost friends and I have no interest in reconnecting with them now that I have um, now that I've um, transitioned from maiden to mother. Like those, yeah. I think it's important to know that like you are expanding and growing to expand and grow the life within. So your values and your beliefs are going to expand and grow. 
and your relationships and the way that you relate to the world is going to expand and grow. Like there are going to be so many changes and cultivating that self-trust and understanding um, your intuition, your boundaries and really connecting to your body is what is going to provide you with that self-confidence and the ability to um, undertake this rite of passage. I think that uh, for a lot of women it comes as a big shock, um, a lot to do with the lack of support that women have, but as well because the fact that it is it is a rite of passage, you are undertaking a transformation. And um, there's a lot of undoing that is going to happen, but it's it's absolutely worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And as well as that, you will never go back to the person that you were before and that's absolutely okay because now you're wiser and you're stronger and, you know, this is the person. You you were meant to undertake this rite of passage so you could step into the role that you were meant to be, to step into the model that you were meant to be. So, yeah, there's my 20 million pieces of advice. Yeah. <laughs> And I loved all of it. Thank you. You're amazing. What a pleasure it is to have you on the show, Taylor. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks so much for having me on, Sky. It's um, quite, a, quite a moment to come full circle and be the one sharing my story yeah. after um, being so fortunate to listen to all of the other stories that the women have shared that were able, that were, like gave me the opportunity to undertake yeah. this journey. So. Thanks so much. Thank you. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Taylor's journey to free birth was marked by meticulous planning and thorough preparation for every conceivable scenario. Through sharing these stories, my intention is to demonstrate that birth works. Even if free birth is not the path you choose to take, absorbing these narratives when no external influences are involved and everything still unfolds the way it's meant to highlights the power of deep trust and surrender to your unique birth. Your body and baby will take it from there. If you have enjoyed our podcast and find value in the stories we share, we would be incredibly grateful if you could take a moment to leave us a review. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us to reach more women who need it and also continue bringing you inspiring stories each week. Thank you so much for being a part of our community. We will be back next week with another episode of Positive Birth Australia. Until then, take care, stay curious and continue to embrace the beauty of birth. Thank you.